Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. Starting well and finishing well are two very drastically different things, aren't they? How many of y'all like, like to like, start new hobbies? And then like, you get two or three weeks in and you're like, eh, I guess I'm kind of good at this, it's fine. And you find the next thing that's interesting. I do this all the time. Uh, Dale and I can identify, he's a little bit of a software engineer too. This happens all the time to us as software engineers. We're like, hey, this is a cool project. I can make this cool tech. It's gonna be awesome. And then like, you get 80% of the way done and you realize that the last 20% is probably the hardest 20%, and you kind of go, eh, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe to bring it a little bit more down to earth, um, I, could, uh, I could start a marathon right now. All right? I'm mad y'all are laughing at me. No, I'm not mad. That's hilarious. I could start a marathon right now. I could. Uh, but the crawling, gasping heap of a man who may or may not arrive at the finish line would be a shadow of my former self. I mean, look at me. All right. Let's just be real, okay? Uh, finishing well is hard. I know, like, I know some of you love running, and a marathon is what you do on a Tuesday, right? Some of y'all are like that, all right? But look, did you know that there are these things called automobiles that literally means uh, self-movers that do that stuff for you? Did you know that? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm kidding, but uh, only a little bit. Um, anyway, finishing well is hard. It's like the Christian life is it's difficult to finish well sometimes, isn't it? At the beginning, right, you're first baptized, you're like, man, just full of zeal, full of certainty, right? And then life begins creeping in a little bit, and you start experiencing some of the suffering that Jesus promised for his people. You begin dealing with temptation and with sin, and you begin maybe getting a little weary and starting to question somewhat, and maybe even wandering and drifting in your faith. Look, if you told me to run a marathon today, and you somehow convinced me to actually start it all, um, do you know what I would eventually and inevitably do? I mean, I know myself. I'd quit, right? I'd get, I'd get in there maybe after the first mile, maybe not even the first mile, let's be real, all right? Like, I'd get into the first mile and I'd be like, man, uh, I'd see all that pain and misery between me and the finish line. And I'd consider the fact that mere bragging rights uh, have never been really a great motivator for me, right? Uh, and I'd, I'd find all these excuses and I'd go find myself an ice cold diet Dr. Pepper in an air-conditioned space where I could wear long pants without sweating. That's what I would do, all right? If some of you guys know me, you know me, my uh, position on shorts. They're for children. Um, sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> I kid, again, a little bit. Uh, but even if, if you said that there was like a billion dollars at the end of the marathon, I still wonder if I'd make it on my own. You know, um, like I wonder if at some point the pain and exhaustion would just kind of overcome me. 
Have you ever been there in your Christian walk? Have you ever found this place where the temptation of sin just absolutely overwhelmed you? You started well, but you've stumbled. You veered off the path. You started walking toward that ice-cold diet, Dr. Pepper, that momentary happiness, that sin. A few weeks ago, I had you do a, uh, a self-check, and I want you to ask uh, yourself and make an honest assessment one more time. How are you doing today honestly? Just how are you doing today, honestly? How's your faith? Are you walking with Christ? Are you running the marathon, running the race, as Paul put it? Or are you sort of wandering off the narrow path? In Mark 14, 26 through 31, which is where we'll be today, you can start flipping there if you'd like. Jesus foretells that his disciples will desert him. While there's only a little glimmer of hope in this passage, um, we know the full story. And so I'm hoping that today I'll be able to give you some hope from this relatively dark passage. I hope that today you'll see that Jesus doesn't just save you and then leave you on your own, but that God keeps his people, even bringing them back from the brink of destruction. That's what I'm hoping that you'll see today from this sermon and from this passage. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's go ahead and read God's word. Why don't you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Again, Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. If you're in the ESV and you have headings, it says, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Starting in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray to him one more time. Lord, I pray that as we see in this passage, the betrayal of the disciples, that they turned on Jesus at his hour of greatest need and they sought after their own good. As we see them sinning and erring so far away from Christ. Lord, I pray that the glimmer of hope you give us in this passage and Lord, the, the amazing, overwhelming hope that you give us in the rest of your word, that that would be a balm to us. That Lord, you would draw your people back today. Lord, where we have stumbled, where we have walked off the path, where we have potentially even walked away from the faith, Lord God, I pray that you would bring those who have walked away from the faith back to you today. And that, Lord, those within my hearing would be changed by your Holy Spirit today as your word is applied to their hearts. I pray, Lord God, that nothing would be said today that is not meant to be said. Lord, give me a prophetic word for your people that, Lord, they might be helped in their walk with you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat.
I realized a moment ago that I uh, neglected to uh, introduce myself. I don't know if we have, we have a couple of new people. Uh, my name is Greg Brown. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic. And uh, I say, as always, uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to address you with the word of God, each and every one of you. I mean that, seriously. Um, this is not something that I could imagine, have imagined uh, doing uh, as I thought about my life in my younger years. Um, but this is where God has led me, and I truly count it as a privilege. So thank you for, thank you all for being here to listen to God's word proclaimed. And that's really what we want to do here at Mosaic, is to proclaim what God has said. It's not about my opinions. It's about what he says. So let's dive into the passage here. I want to kind of present a, a basic outline for the passage and then start looking at maybe ways of application and so in verse 26, we see the tail end of the story uh, that we got in the previous passage, which is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Pastor Brandon last week talked about how this was done at Passover, and they were having this Passover meal, and there would have been several different cups that would have been passed around during the course of this meal. And Jesus actually put the last cup on pause, but they did finish the, uh, the rest of the meal. They finished the meal with a hymn. And it, it, if you look back in the, in the histories and uh, look at and see what the liturgy for a Passover meal was, this would have been the Hallel or praise of Egypt. Uh, this is the ending of the meal. I think it's interesting though that uh, here we see that the Christian people, even in this sort of like prototypical sense, like the, just the disciples, are still singing people, right? God is a singing God. He gave it to the Israelites to sing and praise him. And so they continued this tradition. So this is something that we get from that whole lineage. We are a singing people. And so this morning as we played music and we sang together, that is a good thing. And it is something that is deeply entrenched in not only tradition, but in who God is. He's a singing God. But that's a side point. They sing this Hallel of Egypt, to end the meal. This would have been uh, Psalms uh, 115 through uh, 118, I believe it is. Uh, they would have actually sang this all as a, a single sort of song. And uh, it's interesting, uh, Psalm 115, verses 12 through 14, uh, have a particular passage that I found interesting that Jesus would be singing this with his disciples before he goes to the cross. It says, What shall I render for the Lord... Uh, to the Lord for all his benefits to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows in the, to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This is an incredible little snippet from a much longer passage, you know, it's several chapters there. In fact, we read Psalm 117 this morning as our call to worship. So I'm trying to work this throughout the service. Uh, but this one in particular is interesting because it mentions a cup of salvation. It's interesting that Jesus should be singing this hymn with his disciples right now when he is the very one that is going to provide for them that cup of salvation by drinking the cup of wrath. We're going to see next week in Gethsemane that he prays that that cup would pass from him, but he accepts the Father's will. But when they were done with that singing, they then went out to the Mount of Olives it was an interesting move for Jesus because this is where he has always gone, right? Uh, it's a common place for Jesus. It's where he uh, spent the night 
every day while he was teaching at the temple. This is what Luke tells us in his gospel. It's very interesting that Jesus should go here because just moments before, he had been talking to his disciples and he had been uh, working through uh, not only the Lord's Supper, but celebrating the Passover. And then at one point he says, one of you who is dipping bread in the dish with me is going to betray me. John tells us in his gospel that Judas immediately gets up from the table and leaves. What might that tell you if you were one of the disciples or, or, or Jesus looking at that situation? Well, that guy just left to go get the, the people that are going to come get him, right? Like he's, he's going to go get the authorities. He's going to go get the, the, all the uh, different people that he has uh, colluded with, right, that he was paid his silver from, and he's going to come and get Jesus. So it's a strange move to me that Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives where he always is, right? I say it's strange. It's not strange. But it's stra- it would be strange for us, wouldn't it? It would be strange for us to go to the Mount of Olives where we had always been and just kind of go like, yeah, we're going to get captured. It's going to be fine, right? Like, who in their right mind, right? But it's like Jesus had a plan, huh? Like Jesus had a plan. He was like, I know where, what's happening and I know where I'm going. I know what I need to do. And so he went to the same place he had always been. It's interesting too that this would have been a common place for people to sleep uh, when, uh, during Passover because uh, Jerusalem would triple in population during Passover time. And so like, there's no room in the inn, literally, right? You couldn't get in anywhere. And so people would end up sleeping under the olive trees in the Mount of Olives Um, just trying to find anywhere they could be. And so Jesus uh, went out to this place. You know, you'd think that he would go to the hills if he wanted to avoid capture, but no, he was on a mission not to run, but to be the ransom for the sins of his people by his death on the cross. So from here, we see the last thing that Jesus teaches his disciples before his arrest. The next things that he says in uh, verses 32 through 42, um, as he's interacting with his disciples, isn't really teaching, okay? It's not really teaching. It's him having just a conversation. But this uh, individual passage is the last thing he teaches his disciples before his arrest. It's interesting here that Jesus has been anointed for burial now, right? Remember, the, the woman had opened this flask and poured fragrant oil all over him to anoint him for burial. And he had foretold that G- Judas would betray him. And John tells us again that Judas had immediately left the room and he gave them the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, put the final cup of Passover on pause, saying he would have that with them later on. I can't imagine at that point what sort of heaviness had probably set in. You have this Passover meal and Jesus puts things on pause and he's like, you know, I'm going to drink this last cup with you in my father's kingdom. And what an interesting thing is happening here that they know that something is about to happen, right? There's like this tension point that's happening. And I I believe that, that earlier on when this woman poured the oil over Jesus, that the passion actually began there. Like, the, the suffering began in that moment because it was march to death from that point onward. And so I can't imagine the heaviness that might have been settling in. There might have been some joy over celebrating Passover. It's sort of a bittersweet moment. Jesus has given them this, 
the Lord's Supper, which is an amazing thing, but at the same time, like he's about to do what he always promised he would do. He's going to his death. And so we see here the last thing that Jesus teaches his disciples before he's arrested. Jesus says to them in verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. What a hard thing to hear. The last thing that Jesus teaches them is that they will forsake him at his moment of greatest need. This is actually a quotation uh, from Zechariah 13, 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus is saying, this is, this is speaking of me. He's saying, I am the shepherd who is going to be struck by the sword of God. And the sheep then will be scattered. Interesting side note here uh, on that uh, particular passage. If you start reading, you know, even before Zechariah 13.7, uh, and you continue into chapter 14, you'll find that uh, the latter half of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 is a, actually a retelling of Zechariah 14. Um, very interesting stuff. It's like God's word is consistent or something. Yeah. But it's crazy here that the part of the grand redemptive plan of God was that the disciples would fall away. Hundreds of years previous, he said he would strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. The disciples from the very beginning were going to fall away. That was part of God's grand redemptive narrative. And Jesus chose these people knowing full well precisely how weak they would be. He chose Judas knowing he would betray him. He chose the, the other 11 knowing that they would fall away. He, knew, he chose Peter knowing that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed that morning. What an incredibly heavy thing to say. The last thing you tell your disciples is, as much as you want to stay with me, you will not. I was talking to Ashley uh, about this passage a little bit and um, just chatting back and forth with her. Um, and I, I said, it's kind of like this. It's like I, I've committed to her. I will absolutely always be faithful to her, right? And I could say that to her in that moment. I can say that with all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my strength. I could say, I will never be unfaithful to you. And it's like knowing that that will never come true. Not by my own power. It's like her looking at me and going, I know that you will not. What an incredibly heartbreaking thing. Am I right? To know that your closest friends, those who have been with you through thick and thin, even though they desire so much to stay with you, at your moment of greatest need, they will desert you. I believe this is part of the emotional and mental suffering that Jesus suffered for all of us. See, his suffering was not merely physical and it was not merely spiritual, but it was mental and emotional as well. His friends betrayed him deeply. It wasn't just Judas, right? 
It wasn't just Judas who stabbed him in the back. Like Judas might have turned him in, so definitely a more heinous crime here. But his disciples looked at him seeing, seeing that he was going to be judged and put to death, and they said, no, I, I'd rather preserve myself. I'm not going to go after my friend. They failed miserably to love both God and one another. Because it says they will be scattered. They're going to be scattered. It's, in other words, they're not going to be together anymore. They're not going to leave as a group. Right? So they don't even have one another anymore. They don't care for anyone but themselves at that moment. He says, despite your best efforts, you will fail. What an incredibly difficult thing to hear, the last thing that Jesus teaches. And there's not much hope in this passage. I'm going to be real. There's not much hope in this passage. But there is some hope. And it's in verse 28. It says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There are two ways in which this particular passage is comforting. First, Jesus reiterates that he will absolutely and unquestionably be raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection means that death is defeated and that we will likewise be raised. This is this is core principle for Christianity, okay? What Jesus received in resurrection and glory, we will also receive accordingly with him. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, we could have no expectation of resurrection. But because he did, we can then expect the same resurrection. And so Jesus says, I am going to be raised up. First way it's comforting, he's coming back. But the second way is more emotionally comforting, right? So there's a, a comforting piece that Jesus, yes, he's going to rise again. But that doesn't promise any reconciliation, does it? Right? These people that fell away. He doesn't promise any rec reconciliation by simply saying, I will be raised up. But he says a second thing. I will go before you to Galilee. He said a meeting place. They were scattered, but they would not be scattered forever. It implies two things, that Jesus would be there. So again, reiterating, this is telling them, hey, I am really legitimately going to be raised from the dead. Like I'm going to walk out of the grave, all right? This is how it's going to go. So he reiterates that because he is going to be there. He says, I will go before you, right? I will go means he's going to be there. The second thing, though, and this second piece of comfort, is that they would be there. He says, I will go, who? What? Before you. Before you. He can't go before somebody who's not there. So he says, look, I know that you guys are going to fall away, but I am going to bring you back to this place, and I am going to redeem you, and I am going to forgive you, and I am going to restore you. Despite all the wandering, despite their betrayal, he's going to bring them back to this place. This probably should have been the end of it. But in that moment, these disciples, they, they thought to themselves, well, that doesn't sound like us. This isn't something we, we want. Like we, Our hearts desire to go with you, Jesus. And so Peter says in verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus responds, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. He was trying to hold 
real tight to Jesus, wasn't he? He had every intention, like the beginning of our Christian walk often. We get saved. We're like, man, I'm going to hold on to Jesus. I'm going to hold on. And it's not a bad thing to hold on to Jesus. Don't, don't get me wrong, all right? You should hold on to Jesus. But there's, there's something more going on here. See, Peter, go back to, to Peter's thing here. Even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> Whew, that's a judgment, isn't it? You see Peter's true character coming out. He's got some pride, doesn't he? He's like, man, these guys, they have weak faith, but I have strong faith. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to even go to death with you. Problem is that Peter just saw this weakness, but he failed to see his own. And Jesus ends up pointing out that his failure will be far more heinous than any of the others. I mean, the other disciples just ran to avoid conflict, right? They knew that if they stayed, they would be confronted with this reality of either affirming Christ and dying or disaffirming him and living, right? They would be faced with this dichotomous choice. It's one or the other, right? And they were like, well, we're going to take the third way out so that we don't have to deal with any of that. And so they decide to run instead. I would argue that's less heinous than what Peter did, which was stick around and then lie about it consistently. Just to go, no, I'm going to, that's, that's not me. I don't know who you're talking about. Who's this Jesus guy? Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. People love to throw that, that one around. I don't have time for a sermon on that one today. But that's kind of what's happening here. Peter is seeing in others these flaws that he thinks do not and cannot exist in himself. There's a lesson here, isn't there? You should be careful when you say, I will never fail. If you say a word like, I will never fail, or if a sentence like, I will never fail, man, you're in dangerous territory, aren't you? Dangerous territory. Look, we don't hope to fail. We don't hope to sin, Okay? But rest assured, we will, won't we? Especially when we think we're unassailable. Especially when you think nothing can touch me. That sin, not something I'm worried about. When you think I'm at the top, no one can push me over. I'm perfect in some way, or I'm perfect enough that I'm at the top of the heap. If you think you're unassailable, you have a problem. First John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you say you don't sin, someone is being deceived. It's either you, your listeners, or both. God is not deceived. He knows you. Romans 12.3 warns us against thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. For by the grace given to me, I say to, uh, to everyone among you that you, uh, not to, uh, sorry, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think of ourselves with sober judgment. I probably should have also referenced in here Romans seven, where Paul talks about the Christian life, and he says it's like a. It's like, I want to do all these good things, but I do the very things I don't want to do. 
there's a reality to indwelling sin that sometimes, and really, I'm coming more and more to the conviction that every single action that we take is somehow in some small way tinged with sin. As a pastor, I am acutely aware of the prominent other pastors who have fallen into grievous and terrible sin, especially in recent years. Not to say that modern pastors who have fallen are any worse off than anybody else in history. Let's be real, people just were able to hide it before. Um, And look, I can rightly say that these men have disqualified themselves from ministry by their depraved sins. Okay, I can rightly say that without fear of reciprocity and judgment, but it is a lie from the pit of hell to think that I am safe from the same things, to think that I am unassailable as a pastor, that somehow I am always going to be perfect in this way, so I don't need to worry about it, right? I need to be on guard, don't I? I can't think of myself above this. There's a quote from the 1700s that nobody knows where it came from, but it's very commonly used, but there but for the grace of God go I, right? Basically saying, unless God intervened, that's where I would go to. And that's the problem that Peter had here when he was saying, even though they all fall away, I will not. He had this pride issue saying like, ah, I'm not going to fall. No. We need to remember that we are sinful creatures. We still have, even if you've been saved by Christ, we still have something called indwelling sin. If you wrestle with temptation and sin and you sometimes fail in that temptation, you know what indwelling sin is. I think all of us probably do. I hope you do. I hope you recognize that because it's there in all of you. It's, It's there in me. But if you end up judging others from your pedestal with such disdain about those things, whether it's sexual sin or it's gossip or it's murder or it's whatever else, if you think, yeah, I'm never going to go there and I'm like, I don't even need to worry about it, that sense of pride that you feel is often going to be the very place that ends up falling, the very place that Satan gains a foothold. Talk about John Owen a lot here. Um, one of my favorite quotes from him, and I, I say it often, right? Uh, Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In, that, in the book where that's from, uh, The Mortification of Sin, he, uh, he talks about how you must always be vigilant against sin. You must always be cognizant that that sin is over here somewhere trying to get in and there's, it's trying to gain a foothold in your life and that you have to consistently fight that sin or it will gain a foothold. As soon as you think I'm good there and I don't need to worry about it anymore, that's the moment that it begins to creep in again. And so we should be cognizant of these things. That's Peter's flaw here. Look, this, this whole thing isn't a happy story. You know, Jesus comes back at Peter and says, essentially, like, you judged others like you're not going to fall. Your fall will be worse. He still says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples jump in and they say, us too. What, a, what an unhappy story. What an unhappy story, right? I mean, this is a downer. Let's be real. It's a downer. 
But like I said earlier, we know the full story here, don't we? We know what happens later on. Jesus was never going to leave his disciples where they were. He wasn't going to leave them scattered. He was going to call them back to himself and restore them to himself. This is true of the disciples then, and it is true of Jesus' disciples here and now. God's chosen people can fall away for a time, but he is gracious and faithful to call them back to faith and repentance. He will restore those whom he foreknew and predestined because he will absolutely and unquestionably justify and glorify those same people. If the disciples had been members of, a, of an organized church in this moment, though, with elders and members and church discipline, this wouldn't be formed for a, a little while, uh, they wouldn't have been identifiable as Christians. Let's be real. These people had renounced their faith. The disciples had walked away from Christ, and they failed miserably to love both God and one another, as I said before. The disciples, in this moment, they looked like apostates, didn't they? They looked like people who had walked away completely from the faith. They had legitimately, from all outward appearances, had left the faith. And any church with right discipline would have treated those people as unbelievers. They would have said, not welcome to the table today, right? They would have said, you can come hear the gospel preached, but... I'm sorry, you're not part of this covenant community. And they, any church worth their salt would have rightly done that. But God knows his people, even the ones in sin. And for those who are his, he will absolutely and unquestionably draw them back to himself in faith and repentance. Jesus was certain of his disciples falling away, but he was also certain that they themselves would come to Galilee when it was time. You catch what I'm saying? He knew that they would fail. He knew that they would be weak, but he knew that they would come back. And likewise, sometimes God's people can wander off, but we can be certain that every single one of Jesus' lost sheep will be found and kept until their last day. This is why our confession of faith uh, states clearly in uh, LBCF 17.3, this is not scripture, it's just, it's a confession of faith. It's the summary of what we believe from scripture. Summary of that says, uh, and though they may fall into grievous sins, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Heard of once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. This is how it happens. Jesus draws them back, and then their faith and repentance is renewed. Once saved, always saved is a terrible methodology if you think of it as just fire insurance, all right? People think of it that way. It's like, oh yeah, I punched my ticket, I get into heaven. That's once saved, always saved theology, isn't it? I'm talking about perseverance, okay? In this passage, we see that Jesus is certain that his disciples will be scattered not even looking like his disciples anymore, but they will come back to him in Galilee, and we know the rest of the story. They were restored. They were used mightily by him. If you're wandering, or if you've wandered and you're not sure if you can come back, 
The answer is yes. If you've ever been hurt or if you've ever, and, and then you've walked away from the faith or you've ever just been so mired in sin that you were like, hey, I, I, I don't even know if I believe this thing anymore. If you've walked away before, maybe you feel like you're getting ready to walk away right now and you're not sure if you can come back, the answer is yes, you can come back. The free offer of grace through faith in Jesus Christ is extended to each one of us today. And each one of us, whether long-time believer or new believer today, should repent from our sins and follow Christ. Just trust in him. John 3.16-18 through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There are two paths before you today. You can choose Christ. You can continue to walk with him. You can forsake your sin. You can course correct, right? If you're walking toward the AC with the diet Dr. Pepper, if you're erring deeply into sin, even secret sin, now's the time. Get back into the marathon. Jesus is calling you home. He's saying, get back on the path. Run the race. Fight the fight. He's calling you back. This is his means of grace. And just like Jesus knew who his disciples were from the beginning of his ministry, God knew exactly who you would be from before the foundation of the earth. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him when he brought him on as a disciple. And he also knew that Peter would come to Galilee and that he would be restored in repentance and faith and that at that point and from that point, Peter would be used mightily in his kingdom and that Peter would not fall away. Even the angel at the tomb calls Peter out specifically. He says in Mark sixteen seven, but go, tell his, that is Jesus, disciples and who? And Peter, <laughs> I love it. He's singled out. So there's these people who ran, right? And then they're like, and then he's like, and Peter, make sure you get Peter because I know that Peter needs to be there. It says, get Peter and that, uh, tell him that uh, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. We know that happened. We know what happened there, right? Peter and Jesus get into this conversation and Jesus restores Peter. He knew it would happen. He knew that Peter would deny him. He suffered the mental and emotional anguish of knowing that Peter was going to deny him so that he could save Peter's soul. He loved Peter that much, and he loves us that much if you're in Christ today. Jesus knew that some of you here today would wander off. Maybe you've forsaken his church. Maybe you found yourselves in sin. Maybe you're getting ready to wander off. You're feeling that temptation. He knew that you would be here this day as well. 
And that at the time that he appointed from eternity past, you would hear that he is calling you back right now. Where those sins sit in your life that you don't tell anybody about, those secret things that, man, you hope that nobody ever can find out or you think that nobody could ever find out, he knows them. And he's calling you to lay them down. He's calling you to repent, turn away, and turn to him in forgiveness, that you might receive forgiveness. Yeah, there's no sin too big for the grace of God, okay? No sin. That's an amazing privilege, isn't it? It's an amazing thing that Jesus knew all the deep, dark, nasty stuff inside of each one of you. I know it's there because it's in here. He knew all of that stuff, and this is the scandal of grace. He loved you anyway and laid down his own life for you, that you might be his people, that you might be his brothers and sisters in the kingdom, that you might be glorified with him despite all of the sin. I think that I know that today Jesus has orchestrated this day for each and every one of you because I believe highly in the sovereignty of God. I know that he has orchestrated this moment because you need to hear this. You can come back. There is grace for sin in Jesus Christ that you can be restored. So it's not just, hey, you're forgiven, but you can be restored to that, that, that right relationship with God and that God can use you. Look, who was Paul? Let's talk about Paul. We, we, stepped, we looked at Peter. Let's talk about Paul. Genocidal murderer. Seriously. Genocidal murderer. Greatest apostle, even though he called himself the least. God can use you today. There is no sin too big. Jesus knew you would, who you would be and everything you would do but he died to give grace to everyone who believes, even those who would stumble along the way. I want to close this sermon with a simple quote from uh, a godly man uh, who lived a couple hundred years ago named J.C. Ryle, uh, just an amazing pastor. He said, It is God's glory to pass over the transgressions of his people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loved them. He knows what they will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves them. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.